Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, an alternative history of the world with Robert Peckham and his new book, Fear. Robert Peckham is a cultural historian and founder of OpenCube. He was previously Professor of History, MB Lee Endowed Professor in the Humanities and Medicine at the University of Hong Kong. He has held fellowships at Cambridge, Oxford, LSE and King's College London, and has been a visiting scholar at NYU. And today we're here to talk about Robert's book, which is Fear, an Alternative History of the World. Robert, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So I guess tell us, first of all, what the idea is behind the book. The introduction suggests that the book makes a couple of claims. What are they? Perhaps could I give some sort of background to, because this might be a sort of slightly roundabout way of getting... Indeed, please do. Yeah, so I'm a historian of of, uh, of epidemics and pandemics, and uh, which I've been studying for quite some time. And I had, um, with colleagues, edited two books, one on um, called Empires of Panic, which was about epidemic in colonial settings, predominantly in, in East Asia, uh, and another project on anxiety, fear, and panic in colonial settings, these two projects. So I, I become interested in the way in which, during epidemics, fears over panic um, became almost as important as fears of the disease itself. That is one route to, to my thinking that it certainly informs this book, Panic and Alternative History of the World. The claims I make in the book are kind of twofold. The first is the ways in which uh, European uh, experiences of fear and panic have been, been exported to the world. And I guess that's my background as a, as a historian of empire. Um, I look at the ways in which fear has been used as a coercive tool. But I'm also interested in the way in which fear has been a catalyst for, if you like, more positive change, uh, the ways in which fear has been twinned with hope. So it's not all a fearful story. And I see a generative aspect to fear that I try and trace through the book. I guess we should define what we mean by fear here, because obviously it seems like a, a simple question, but it isn't. No, it's a very tricky question. And um, even within the science, there are controversies about uh, what fear is and how it works on the neurophysiological level. What I understand by fear in the book is partly a neurophysiological process, but also a cultural process. And I'm interested in the way in which uh, fear shapes us culturally 
in other words, we we learn what to fear. We're in a sense um, enculturated in our fears, and this uh, has two aspects. Uh, the first it enables us to think about how we've got to where we are. In other words, how have our fears been shaped by historical experiences? And secondly, I think it opens the door to us being able to modify our fears if we accept that in part our fears are shaped by societal and cultural processes. The book starts with a, a couple of personal anecdotes from your own life in um, both Hong Kong and, and particularly the one I wanted you to, to tell us about is in Pakistan. Tell us about this story. Yeah, so uh, as a student sort of backpacking through Pakistan and eastern Afghanistan, I got caught up in a, in a terrorist attack. And, you know, I, I guess most people have experienced fear in their lives in different forms. But that was a very fearful experience caught up in a panicking crowd. Um, and I guess that was one uh, route to my thinking. Um, it led me to, to ponder how my own experience of fear uh, as an individual was caught up in a very complex historical experience um, that defines that part of the world. And again, you know, this feeds into my interest as a, as a historian of empire and, and colonization. So that experience then led me to think about the relationship between individual fear, collective fears, and the kind of geopolitical, cultural forces that shape the ways in which fear is produced. Fast forward to uh, my experience at, uh, at the University of Hong Kong, where I was actually head of history during the period that was quite um, tumultuous of the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. And I think that the ways in which that crackdown happened on the pro-democracy uh, movement there certainly informed the book. That was the background against which it was written and the ways in which uh, pandemic fear uh, and political fears intertwine. In fact, that, that's an important aspect of this book. Uh, the ways in which different fears are in, become entangled. So it's difficult to say what is producing the fear. So obviously, as long as there have been hominids, we have been scared of things. And indeed, people do think of fear in some ways as some sort of atavistic instinct from those days. But you start this book in the 14th century. You mentioned, again, being um, a historian of, of pandemics. And here we look at the um, both famine and the plague. So let's talk about how the plague changed Europe. The first thing, just, you know, picking up on something you said there, I'm not for a moment claiming that fear or uh, panic as a particular behaviour of that stems from or an aspect of fear originates in the 14th century. As you said, fear has a very, very long history in prehistory. What I'm interested in is how fear works its way into particular shifts that are happening in Europe at this time as a prelude to the European expansion that will happen in the course of the uh, subsequent centuries. The plague I look at in terms of the uh, social, psychological, economic shock waves that it produces, uh, and the way in which it challenges the hegemony of the Christian church, the Catholic church, uh, and the ways, it's, ways that w in which it plays in. It's one factor that I think explains uh, some of the shifts that happen uh, that we associate with the Reformation and the wars of religion. Um, so I see it as a very um, important moment. Plague, I mean, this is the area that I've studied a lot. The fear of the plague produces then migrates uh, into different kinds of fears. Uh, and that, in fact, this is one of the, uh, sub, uh, the areas that I explore in the book, how, going back to what I was saying before, how fears of disease often become fears of other things. Um, and I think we can see that during the Black Death 
the so-called Black Death, remembering that Black Death was a term that was applied later to this uh, catastrophe, but also during you know the recent pandemic, where fears of of uh, the virus quickly transmute into other kinds of political, economic, and social fears. And with the Reformation, you talk about how the change in our relationship, the change in the individual's relationship to God, it becomes a much more personal relationship rather than mediated through a you know a previously all powerful Catholic Church. What? How does that relate to the individual's experience of fear? Uh, that's a very important part of of my argument, and it's one that's linked to technology. So, as a strand that goes through the book, is the ways in which fear relates to different technological. Uh, changes that happen. Um, one could say that, that writing, uh, certainly printing, so in the case of the Reformation, the printed book becomes a very important way in which reflections on the nature of fear can circulate, also propagandistic literature can circulate. And these are very involved in the production and also in the management of fear. And this dual aspect of technology, the way in which technology becomes a facilitator of fear, it opens up new circuits for fear to travel through, but it also becomes a means for management is something that I explore in later chapters, whether it's in relation to the telegraphic system in the late 19th century, or indeed the internet. In terms of the reading experience and the emphasis on personal relationship with God, I see that as very crucial. This is a moment that, in a sense, the terminology of fear and panic becomes more fixed uh, when there's a much more focus on what these experiences mean and how they can be managed both on the personal level but also on the political level. And so I'm interested in this tension between the individual, the citizen, and the state sovereign as it develops from the 16th century onwards. In relation to that, you talk about in the chapter discussing the sort of, you know, the period of various religious wars and religious persecutions, particularly in France, about the um, the design of the Palace of Versailles in particular as some sort of embodiment of power. And I was really struck by that. Tell us something about that. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in the way that fear shapes societies, not only in terms of behaviours, but in terms of the institutions and the structures that shape those behaviours. So I take Versailles as a sort of an exemplary case of how uh, fear works its way into, you know, an architecture and becomes a sort of means of reinforcing certain kinds of behaviour. Uh, the rise of etiquette, uh, court behaviour. These are ways of um, restraining behaviour, channeling it, um, in ways that I see as very linked to power. I'm focusing on fear. There are many aspe- other aspects of that side that one could talk about. And I guess that what I'm trying to do is bring out this backstory of fear that is often pushed into the background, a sort of taken-for-granted aspect of power. And you talk about ideas of fear in the literature of the time, as you said, you just mentioned the sort of, you know, technological advance of the, uh, you know, the invention of the printed words. And you discuss writers of this period from Machiavelli through Thomas More to Shakespeare and Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan. So what sort of ideas about fear and its uses were being propagated by some of these writers at the time? Yes, I'm interested in the different ways in which fear starts to appear in, in literature and in philosophical writings. And I guess to sort of summarise what is a quite a complicated landscape, that there's an interest on the one hand in the relationship between fear and power. Uh, and on the other hand, there's an, an interest in the experience of fear. 
how, how fear is experienced. And so I'm kind of interested in chapter you you're mentioning there in looking at how these uh, different strands of reflection on fear kind of overlap. Um, Shakespeare being a, a good example of the ways in which, and he's very, very interested in the nature of fear and power, the ways in which uh, fear can become a, a pool of power, but also in the ways in which power can be skewed uh, and distorted by fear. But then also on the experiential aspects of fear, how do we experience fear? The sort of psychological dimensions, if you like, of fear. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Robert Peckham, and we're talking about his book, Fear, An Alternative History of the World. And Robert, let's start off the second half talking about fear and its uses as both a tool of, but also in some ways an excuse for colonialism. Yeah, so I'm, you know, this is very much the, the has been the centre of my work for you know, quite a long time. Yes, I'm interested in in, in the ways in which fear is used as a tool, but also, and I, I was explaining before, particularly interested in the way in which colonial authorities tried to manage indigenous panic, uh, what they saw as a, a panic-prone population. So I, what I'm sort of interested in is the ways in which fear is used as a tool, but then fear starts to permeate the institutions of colonialism itself. Um, I'm also interested in the sort of the cultural mistranslations that are part of the story of fear the ways in which, for lack of uh, understanding, cultures can misread each other. 
Um, so there's a sort of coercive aspect here to, to how fear is being used as a tool. But there's also the idea that fear emerges from mistranslation. There's an example in this chapter about um, a cholera epidemic in Manila in the Philippines. Tell us what happened. So I'm fascinated by this episode, um, which takes place at a very important moment in a shift in power that's happening in this part of Asia, where Britain has become ascendant. And uh, this is after the Napoleonic Wars in 1820. And the British have occupied, uh, at the end of the 18th century, they occupied parts of the Philippines. Um, so you have these big geopolitical economic shifts that are happening, the end of the Spanish Empire, you know, the, 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 the so-called galleon trade the Trans-Pacific trade, and the emergence of new powers. And I'm interested in this cholera outbreak that erupts in Manila. It's part of a pandemic that happens, spreading from the Bay of Bengal across much of Asia uh, to China and Japan, where it hits very hard. And I'm interested in the ways in which this cholera pandemic plays into my story of fear in the sense that it heightens tensions between uh, foreigners and sort of native uh, Filipinos. And again, this is p- very much part of my story of, uh, of, of a sort of mistranslation. So, so fear here is an interesting way of thinking about um, the stage, I think, of early 19th century colonization in, in Asia. I want to talk about, I mentioned in the first half, some writers that you talk about, and you also um, reproduce pictures by various artists throughout the book earlier on there's um there's talk of Bruegel and the, the sort of trend for pictures of like like dance macabre pictures and his pictures of skeletons and death and i wanted to you to talk in some detail about the work of goya here as well a little later on and well both let's talk about goya but also more broadly ideas of the sublime in art and their connection to ideas of fear Yes, um, I, if I had had my way, I would have had many, many more illustrations in the book. Any kind of study of fear, sort of uh, without illustrations, I think would be lacking. Um, in terms of the sublime, going back to my initial experience that I tried to describe, like many experiences of fear, it's actually quite hard to analyze uh, the psychological processes that one experiences. But going back to that early experience, something that I sort of began to understand and to a certain extent I explore in the book is the ways in which fear can open your eyes in new ways to the world. In other words, when you are your life is threatened in some way, you start to sort of reevaluate it and you see the world through fresh eyes. And I suppose that answering your question about the sublime, one aspect of the sublime is this ability that fear has to expand the mind, to expand the way in which we see the world. So in this sense, uh, you know, fear as a lot of late 18th, early 19th century writers reflected, is expansive. There are sort of benefits from fearing that can be accrued from fearing. But then there's also the shutting down that fear can produce, the terror, the freezing, the paralysis that fear can bring about, crushing of, of, of the individual that fear can, can bring about. So I guess within the sublime, there lurks this contradiction between fear as a kind of generative force and fear is something that is crushing, and in that sense, negative. And this is a dual aspect of fear that I think that um, occurs in a lot of thinking about fear, whether that's in the period that we're talking about now, the period where the sublime was an important idea, or whether it's actually thinking about fear today. And in the work of um, Goya in particular, tell us something about his use of fear as a subject. 
Well, I mean, I'm interested in in the world that Goya depicts through his his art, and obviously, fear is one aspect of that. And again, the idea that fear, that the idea of a shock to the to the viewer as being something that that can sort of open the viewer's eyes in new ways to the world. So I think that Goya is a great example of the ways in which art both describes the world and then maps out changes or is a catalyst for changes in the viewer. And just stepping back a bit, because I realised I'd missed something and we'd gone beyond the Napoleonic Wars. But go back to the uh, the French Revolution, uh, literally a, a time, so-called reign of terror, and the, the sort of beginnings of the idea of terror as like a political principle in the sort of ways that we would, I guess, think of terrorism now. Tell us something about this period. Well, this is a very... This is a very interesting period in the sense that the justification for terror was overturning tyranny and bringing about um, a different kind of free society. So it brings to the fore some of the tensions and contradictions in how fear is used as a tool. In other words, fear is often used to displace other kinds of tyrannical fears. And so, so I'm interested in, in how the the French Revolution kind of provides a sort of backdrop for a lot of subsequent thinking and worries about where fear is placed, both in relation to fear as something that brings about positive change, uh, social transformation, etc., but also the ways in which it sort of becomes an emblem for a kind of terror. And I think that lurks in a lot of 19th century worries about, you know, an urban underclass, about revolution, etc., so the idea of fear as being sort of instrumental in bringing about the end of fear and the beginning of a new kind of freedom, but then how, how that comes caught up in this other kind of coercive fear. And obviously the debates about the French Revolution and fear continue very much heated to this day. And you talk in the book about how we can use fear as a prism through which to see the, um, the horrors of the Atlantic slave trade as well. Yes, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by that, both the experience of terror for captive Africans and also the ways in which terror was used as a sort of moral instrument uh, of persuasion. Um, so there's two sort of aspects to that. And I guess that chapter touches on something that will probably be quite a sensitive point, which is the ways in which the terror of slavery um, is linked to an economic, global economic system that obviously in some form survives. And so what I'm interested in is the ways in which that particular experience of terror shapes the global economic environment in ways that will, you know, have implications in the 19th and 20th centuries. It's, it's, it's a continued story. So I end with, uh, you know, laborers in Brazil and, and thinking about the aftermath of slavery. Uh, and the continuation of slavery by another name, if you will. You talk about in that chapter about, you know, not only the the fear of the, the enslaved peoples, but how that is used by the abolitionists, by the abolitionist movement, you know, make great use of the horror and fear of the people. But then, of course, once the actual, the Atlantic trade is abolished, how that goes on to persist the terror of the enslaved people still in, in the US goes on and persists, but also then fear is used by the enslavers as well in terms of like a, as, as a mechanism of control to, uh, you know, out of fear of rebellion, out of fear of, um, of slave revolts. 
Exactly. It's the interaction between these different uses of fear, um, you know, the uses of fear in terms of the, the onboard culture of the, of the slave boats, the uh, use of fear amongst the plantation, uh, the slave owners, holders and, and plantations in, in America. But it's also the fears that these people had in interaction. So I'm looking at the interactions of these different fears. And I guess that one of the points that I'm trying to make right early on in the book is the way in which fears get reconfigured. You know, there's a sort of liquid aspect to fear, if you want, Will, that fear never never goes away. It's just reconfigured and moves. And I'm interested in sh- in tracing the movement of these fears as they move between these different agencies or agents uh, involved in the story of slavery. You mentioned when talking about the the French Revolution, how something that comes out of that is a sort of ongoing fear of the rising up of a of a sort of urban underclass, and also ideas around how you know changing technology changes how we perceive fear as well. And um, you talk about you go into more detail about just the rise of industrialization. Obviously, then there is um, there's a whole slew of chapters about the various horrors of the um of the 20th century which you know seem to come out of in a lot of ways out of the rise of industrialization whether or not that's capitalist financial crashes or whether it's um you know the 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 industrialized slaughter of the first world war or industrialized murder of the of the holocaust in the second world war um just tell us something more about just this idea of the rise of industrialization and and the fears that that brings yeah so i i think you're right to connect the my interest in the sort of industrial world with the uh, subsequent chapters, whether it's the you know the, the first world war, and um, what I'm interested in is the ways in which um, certain fears coalesce around um, around technologies, for example. So my chapter on industrialization is looking at the ways in which fears, not only in terms of uh, the communication of fear through telegraphic systems, but also in terms of things like the cinema. And I, so I look at different technologies. And underlying this is really fears about the place of the individual and of the human uh, in relation to uh, a sort of uh, abstract, cold, mechanical world. And uh, I think there's a sort of um, uh, connection here to some of the fears that we have now uh, in terms of sort of AI, etc. So on the one hand, there's a sort of political aspect to this fear. Uh, the idea of a sort of estrangement that industrialization brings about. And I think particularly important in all of these chapters is the relationship between individual uh, individual fear uh, and collective fear and the ways in which fear threatens communities, it threatens societies at the same time as it um, it's sort of a generative in the sense that uh, communities form around shared fears. Um, so these are sort of two aspects of fear that I sort of explore in different ways throughout these throughout these chapters. And just one more thing then, I guess a, a slightly glib final question from me that, you know, we like to think we're uh, better than people in the past, but like, I, you know, I sit here talking to you today in a world that where we, you know, there are many fears of terrorism, climate change, immigration, obviously a pandemic has just happened, various different moral panics, you know, nuclear weapons still can we ever achieve Roosevelt's dream of freedom from fear, Robert? <laughs> no, no, is the short answer. But I maybe I should say something 
as a sort of corrective to this idea of fear as an unmitigated, um, you know, negative, uh, negative story. And that's to say that fear has brought about many positive changes. And, you know, one could give the example um, in the 19th century of uh, some of the big uh, social reform movements, whether that's in terms of sort of urban reform, that often they're sort of characterized as humanitarian movements. But in effect, fear drove many of them. Fear of disease, fear of, um, you know, urban revolution if the poor were kept uh, in the conditions that they were. So fear can be an impetus to change. And that's sort of one story, I think, that I try to tell. And in terms of what you were saying, the whether it's climate change and environmental catastrophe, fear uh, as a motivation for change are important aspects of the story of fear. The other thing I would say is that fear is very closely twinned with hope. It's an aspect of my story that I bring out from the beginning. That's to say that if you espouse any positive value, there's always a fear that that value could be, in some sense, undermined by forces that will bring it down. So fear lurks behind our espousal of the positive values, and it's a sort of uh, defensive protective force. And I think that many thinkers, particularly after the Second World War, which saw obviously uh, the rise of, of fascism through democratic process, many thinkers put fear at the forefront of their understanding of what liberalism was. In other words, that one has to fear uh, forces that will try to undermine these values. So the, the story isn't, in other words, only uh, a story of coercive fear. It's also the story of fear as a catalyst for change, fear as a sort of protective force for those values, justice, freedom, etc., that many of us in the, you know, in the world would espouse. So I've been talking to Robert Peckham. We've been talking about his book, Fear, An Alternative History of the World, which is out in the UK now from Profile Books. Robert, thanks so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you very much, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.